what do you call a lawyer at the bottom of the ocean? I don't know, Matt. What do you call a lawyer at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and our guest today is the bravest woman in America. Recent surveys show that the least trusted professions in America include business executives, car salespeople, and of course, lawyers. Shakespeare suggested that the first thing we should do is to kill all the lawyers. But facing this wall of disdain is CBS News legal analyst Kim Whaley. And she isn't having it. She argues that we could all learn a thing or two from lawyers. And in fact, if you could think more like a lawyer, you'd make better decisions and you'd be happier. Her new book is called How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. Now, this sounds like an uphill battle, this book, but if anyone can pull it off, I believe in Kim Whaley's ability to pull it off. She's also a law professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's a former assistant U.S. attorney, and you may be recognizing her right now, not only from her work as a CBS News legal analyst, but also her appearances on CNN, MSNBC, NBC, BBC, NPR, and as our previous guest here on Beyond Politics. We are delighted to have you back. Well, thank you, Matt, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And just to clarify, I'm no longer technically a CBS legal analyst. I'm a free agent, but have done a lot of work on all of those all of those outlets. Well, I would like to say that you're you're leveling up with us, but it sounds like look, all the other bookers out there, you've 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 got a potential asset here. So so pay close attention. Now, look, Kim, the last time we had you, it was just you and me, and this time we managed to rope in my co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes who's here. Now, at the very bottom of that list of unpopular professions that I cited a moment ago is members of Congress. So the setup here for this show is that we've got a former member of the least trusted profession asking you about why people should be more and think more like members of the fourth least trusted profession. This is a great setup. And it seems like you recognize the problem right at the start of your book, which is terrific, by the way. People should read this book. That the idea of thinking more like a lawyer isn't going to be appetizing to everyone. But your point right at the outset seems to be that what law students learn is how to think through thorny problems, not what to think. And that does seem like a good skill. So is that the why here? Is that why the rest of us should learn to think like lawyers? Yeah, you put your finger on it, Matt. And honestly, this book is less about being a lawyer or coming from my experience as being a lawyer and more coming from my experience as an educator and a mom. I have four daughters. And what, what oh, after many years, students coming in 15 years, every fall, first years, increasingly, I see students who think about answers. They figure that their job is to either pick a side or even less nuanced, figure out what Professor Whaley wants and feed me what I want. And if lawyers were if lawyers were doing that, no one would hire them. If you could just Wikipedia or Google the answer to a legal problem, no one would pay you. And so lawyers have to look for questions, not answers. Mm. And it's very difficult, frankly, and increasingly difficult over the years to disabuse law students or college grads coming in that that's the skill. And what we see on TV and the bad sort of press that lawyers get is the fighting in court, or we just saw this week, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, that 
tragedy, frankly, that was out playing out on national television. But what we don't see are the weeks, months, years sometimes of spade work that lawyers have to go through to get to the point where they have uh, a case to make in court, that they've figured out how to get the evidence in, that they've figured out how to make an argument within the limits of the law. And we also saw this, I think, play out in the 2020 election where 60 plus Trump-led lawsuits were thrown out, not because those judges were more neutral than politicians or voters, but because they're bound by rules. And I think when you're bound by rules and there's accountability for breaking rules, which is the case in the, the legal system, it's fairer and more predictable for the rest of us. All I can tell you is that that you're just the very title of your book and the subject of the book really just gave me, I don't know what, not exactly PTSD because I'm now of counsel at my old firm, but I spent a lot of my life thinking and acting like a lawyer. And it one of the, I really relate to what you say about the first year law students coming in because I was a terrible first year law student. I had, I was just awful. I had, I had come in after a life in show business. I had eight careers in show business before I, I went into the law, just opening up my heart and expressing myself emotionally. And now I had to come in and learn how to think like a lawyer. And it wasn't until the very end of my first year that I had a brainstorm, which was, wait a second, the, when I'm doing these exams, they don't want my answer. They want me to ask the right questions and be able to argue both sides. I don't need to come up with the answer. I need to be able to say, well, you might argue this and you might argue that. And in the end, maybe it's this, but it's more likely that, but maybe not. And 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 when I did that, I started, I mean, I, I became a very successful law student. And, and as a lawyer, I suppose that thinking like a lawyer has been part of my life ever since. I'm in business now. And my colleagues will often turn to me and say, well, you're the, you're the lawyer. What do you say? And I say, well, let's go and look at it this way. And then let's look at it that way, because we're negotiating with somebody and he might be looking at it this way but he might be looking at it that way. So part of your argument in the book is that being a lawyer helps you with good decision-making. Decision so let me take you just uh, out of your practicing law as a profession. Has there been a time when you've been able to navigate a complicated so problem or develop a, a solution to a situation because you've been trained to think like a lawyer? Well, I think most, or I, I suspect many people who have law degrees remember that exact moment you're mentioning. For me, it was uh, in law school, we had to do a brief in a writing class for one side, that is argue one side. And then when we showed up for the oral argument, they did a switcheroo and had us represent the other side. And mm. I, I'll never forget that. It was I was so convinced that my side was right. And imagine a world in which, like lawyers have to do, you have to imagine your opponent's best case. You have to imagine that you're, you're, you are standing in the shoes of your opponent, it's an excellent lawyer, and you've mastered their case as well. 
as your own. And what in your question reminds me, frankly, of uh, a trip I took to Disney World recently with my daughters. And, and I was in an Uber with an Uber driver who was pretty vociferous about his support for the former president, pretty vociferous, unsolicited about his belief in the election being fraudulent. And it was clear I was not on the same page. My daughters, frankly, were a little bit uncomfortable. It was an hour long ride. By the end of the ride, this man said that the next time we come to Florida, he's a scuba diver instructor and he'd be happy to show us around and please let him know that we're back in our hometown safely. And my girls looked at me and said, mom, how did you do that? And the lawyer, and actually the, the driver said, I was gonna pull over and let you out of the, of the car because it was clear where you are politically. And so to answer your question, Paul, I mean, what did I do? Well, I know we're gonna go through the steps, but you kind of get curious about where that person's coming from. You try to find an issue of common ground. You get them kind of invested in something, frankly, in that conversation. What I got him to agree to was what politicians tend to have different incentives than your best friend, your sister, your religious leader, your doctor. So that wasn't a Republican versus a Democratic sort of point of view. It was, yeah, there are other people in your life that you tend to trust more with really important decisions. Once we kind of agreed on that, things settled down and we could have a, a conversation about pieces of where we were. That is where we were apart versus I'm, I'm, an, I'm in this team, you're on that team. I'm going to dig into my team. My job is to defend my team. When my, when my 11 year old said, whoa, mom, what, what happened there? I think, honestly, I would attribute it to being able to think like a lawyer, to be able to get out of black and white outcome-oriented thinking. Because as you know, Paul, if, if you just go into court with your side in mind, you're, you're going to get blindsided. You're going to get hammered. And, and the goal of the book, as much as people look at it and say, oh, lawyers, they're sort of, they're not to be trusted. The goal of the book is to really give people some tools to empower them that are not about kind of othering an opponent are not about shaming are not about digging into sides and say listen sometimes i can feel really great right i'm on this team that's my team i feel powerful because i'm on that team but the idea behind the book and lawyering is you know what i can be powerful by using these tools and as you also know paul you have to be able to fight with someone on a monday and get along with them on a tuesday that that's <laughs> That might be one of the, and it used to be that way in Congress. You can tell me if that's still the case, but I think it's one of the only professions in America where that that is part of the deal, right? That's just part of the profession. Yeah. We used to talk about, well, I still do. Let's disagree without being disagreeable. And and what, what you've said, I'll, I'll just, uh, well, let me just take a moment for another story because I actually thought of a, of, a re, of a pretty good story about thinking like a lawyer, acting like a lawyer, and how the training kicked in. I had run my car off the road one winter uh, and was deep in a ditch with a broken axle and we called a tow truck and the tow truck driver came and was hauling me and my car out of the ditch to wherever we were going. And along the way, he somehow the conversation turned to the recently enacted Obamacare. And he was railing about the government takeover of, of his health care and how he was opposed to it. 
and 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 I and I his personal situation came up because while he was railing about healthcare, it turned out that his girlfriend, who was bearing his child, was in the hospital getting maternity care, which she would not have had other, except for the fact that Obamacare existed. So on the one hand, he was railing against healthcare. On the other hand, here was his baby being cared for, his his yet-to-be-born baby being and, and girlfriend being cared for because of Obamacare. I had to back away completely from the emotional response was, you stupid idiot, what do you think would happen to your girlfriend without Obamacare? Which was my, I, I can admit, as a human, is sometimes my first instinct. So I had to back up and ask him a series of questions to begin to find out why he was opposed and what, and eventually lead him to the question of, so without Obamacare and the healthcare provided, what what would happen to your girlfriend in the hospital? And he ended up saying, well, she'd have to pay for it herself. And I said, can she afford that? He said, no, we can't afford that. On, come on, we can't afford that. I said, well, maybe you Maybe you'll think about whether there are some benefits to Obamacare and left it there. But except for my training as an attorney, kicking in to be able to back up and ask those questions without blame, without blaming him, that conversation would have gone sideways really fast. What both of those stories point out is the very first part of your formula. And for, for people who are now listening to this and saying, all right, maybe I should check out this book. You should, because this isn't like a mystical formula that you keep to yourself. You you actually, you show all your cards in the book and you, you break it down. Actually, everyone loves a good acronym. So your acronym for your method is BICAT, which is like you're taking leave of your pet. And the first step is the B is breaking things down, which I love. I love the idea of the, the way to eat an elephant is a bite at a time. And you you really go through how to do that and how lawyers do that. So is that is that what's going on in your story, your car story and Paul's car story is is the, the magic of breaking a problem down? Well, that's certainly the first step. I mean, I all, I think Paul's story could bring out all five steps, but I've talked to former students who have said or been on panels, actually, one student in particular who said that is the number one thing she took out of law school and my classes in particular is to break it down. And and I think that serves a number of benefits. One is what Paul indicated is that it just slows everything down. Mm. It takes the emotion out of it. And it also, I think big decisions, and I talk about in the book, I've been through a bad divorce. There's so many things that when you're going through a divorce with kids, it's overwhelming. It's We've all had those decisions or a big medical decision or do I take the job across the country? And And if you just, like the elephant, if you consider that as one big problem, your fight or flight, sort of hormonal reaction can kick in. You start getting anxious. It becomes something you almost can't talk about. You, some of us will avoid it. Some of us will obsess about it. It just feels overwhelming. So the beauty of breaking something down is to get out of that reactive mode, but it's also setting the stage for something that's really important that also came out of Paul's Paul's anecdote, which is actually the last step, the T, which is you've got to tolerate that not everyone's going to agree with you and you don't get everything you want. When you break something down into smaller issues, you realize you can't have it all. 
It's not all or nothing. If you want, I mean, I use an example, and when I talk about this sometimes, do you send your kid to school in a pandemic if you are have to get them vaccinated in order to put them in school, right? So many things, people could react to that. I'm pro-vaccine, I'm against vaccine. That's how a lot of us did it in the past few years. But actually, if you break that down, there's a lot going on there. There's the educational needs of your child. Do they do better in the school environment? Or are they okay with Zoom? Maybe they like Zoom better. There's a so social, psychological development. I think kids are really suffering from being isolated, particularly kind of the teenage years and the early, the college kids, a lot of social anxiety, a lot of problems from just being isolated. There's the medical benefits or problems. There's, there's the pros and cons of a vaccine, but there's also maybe your child has some pre-existing pre medical condition and really COVID is complicating for them. So, so there's all of that. And then then at the end, maybe, Matt, is your political views on the role of government and whether schools should be mandating that. So when you break all those down into little pieces, it becomes a lot harder to be black and white about this, to be team oriented about this. Then you, you do an analysis of each of those pieces. And I have in the book, you prioritize which are the most important to you. So maybe you're really anti-vaccine, but you know your kid is just not gonna do well on Zoom at home. Just not gonna do well. And you say, okay, I know when I go to uh, bowling or to the country club with my friends this weekend and my kid's going to school and got a vaccine, maybe I'm gonna have to deal with some social shame, but this is what my kid needs. And that's my priority. That's a really different approach to some of these hard questions that have now become so politicized that really do impact our families than yes, no, right, wrong, black, white, red, blue. It's that polarized thinking that gets us in trouble. It's good, and I talk about this in the book, the, the science behind it. If the pterodactyl is gonna eat you, or if, if, you, if you are about to get hit by a car and you're in a, in a, a stressful situation, or if you have gotta make the deal in a, of the sale, sometimes those kind of reactive decision-makings are really important. But some of these more complicated issues, it's like law is rarely black and white. It's mostly gray. And life is rarely black and white. Right? It's mostly gray. And that's what the book tries to do, is to give people some tools for dealing with the gray. But Kim, I do want to touch on the third element in the acronym, in your formula, because I have a bit of a problem with it, to, to tell you the truth. It's the C. It's collecting lots of facts. Now, you start out that chapter. And you point out, it's actually a great piece of, of data, and I did a little math, I don't want to make people nervous, but you basically point out that it would take you 3,000 years of binge-watching full-length movies to watch what is the data storage equivalent of what's held now in data by just Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook. Not the rest of the world, not all the governments, not every other company, not every other institution on earth, just those four companies. That's the amount of information that's out there. And, you know, the thing about that is that nowadays my nine-year-old can produce a pretty good report on, let's say, whales. He just did that for school by spending 15 minutes on Wikipedia. And an AI could do the same thing. But the trick, and you alluded to this earlier, is knowing what information is really important. And I'll give you an example. We did a, a tabletop training exercise when I was in graduate school. We had some of the top foreign policy experts in the country in to kind of run this exercise with us. And the scenario was a new Cuban Missile Crisis. And we had a former Air Force general who had been the 
he was a muckety muck in the Air Force. And this, the scenario was, there's a new Cuban Missile Crisis. What do you do to avoid nuclear Armageddon? And there was a key fact embedded in this scenario, which is, if you escalate what you do as the US, there is a real possibility that the Russian radar system is so bad that they'll get it wrong, they'll think they're being attacked, they'll launch World War III. And this Air Force general comes in and he suggests his move would be, well, let's drop a bunch of tinfoil over Moscow to disrupt their electric grid. And I'm thinking to myself, you have all this data, you have all this information, you missed the key fact that if you do that, World War III, the world ends. So how do you, in thinking like a lawyer and doing the third step of your acronym, collecting lots of information, how do you sift through it? How do you hone in on the information that really matters? Vital question that I think has outrun the law. Frame. And I've written about this for 10 years in scholarly journals, this idea of the digital age, big data, information overload. The Constitution, statutory law is just, it's been completely outmaneuvered. And I think about growing up in the 70s and 80s, where I was one of five children in Buffalo, New York, and my mother got the encyclopedia at the super duper grocery store. And every month, if she spent enough money, she got the next volume. And all five of us use that for all our book reports, right? And if you really wanted to, dig, dig, I did a, an honors thesis at Cornell in English. I had the three by five cards. I was in the stacks. I was pulling out the microfiche. It was, a, the task was to learn how to excavate and find the information. Then the entire paradigm shifted. Now it's not just, you mentioned, just a, a glut of data, but it's also access isn't uniform. My phone, when I put in a Wikipedia search, it's going to produce something different from yours, different from Paul's, because the algorithm is thinking for us and producing what it thinks we already believe. Mm. So, so it's, it's, we need as a society, as, as parents of our children, but also as adults, we need to develop an entirely new skill set. It's not about finding, it's about sorting. And, and I have some, some tips. I'm not necessarily an expert. I don't know if there's any expertise in this, but I do have some tips in there for people as a, as a basic framework for how do you manage it, the information in your phone. Number one is to to look into the source itself. You know, journalists have a code of conduct. They're not going to go to jail if they don't if they don't follow it, but it's a matter of professionalism. Certain outlets, I tell people, get in your DeLorean like Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future, go back to the 80s and see what were those entities. The New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, ABC, NBC. These places that just as a matter of professionalism, they make sure they don't give you garbage information. That's number one. Number two is click on the hyperlinks. You don't have to go to microfiche. You can click on the hyperlinks, read the read the first 20 pages of the Mueller report yourself. Read the indictment. Read John Eastman's memo on January 6th. I know that we might see it. Read it yourself. That's number two. And the third piece is, and I learned this when I was teaching a law school class when I was under contract at CBS. I was on TV with Nora O'Donnell and Jonathan Turley debating the first impeachment, and I was teaching a class on democracy and the Constitution. And the, and the pitch in the classroom was very heated. So before we read the Supreme Court cases, I said, I want you to read two op-eds on two points of view. Just two points of view on each of these topics. And we did, we sorted it. How do you find good information? At the end, they said, this is the first time we've been in a classroom where we felt safe to talk about this stuff. 
and we thought we thought we were curious about other people's points of view because we came in with two in mind, not just our own. So so I think it's again, I, I just think it's something we need pedagogically to start deliberately implementing like health class for our kids because it's just so outrun historically how mm. we think about information. So let me go back to my time in Congress and ask you a question. When I was in Congress, the global economy collapsed and Congress proposed rescuing at least the American economy with something called TARP. We were going to rescue all the banks. And I won't go into the crazy way that that all developed over the course of 24 hours when we got a plan supposedly from the Fed, which said, just give us billions and billions of dollars and don't ask any questions. But I had to decide whether to vote for it. And Matt was my chief of staff. And of course, my mother was on the phone early and often yelling at me that I had to do something to save, save, save everything, which was very important to me, but didn't help my decision making. But Matt set up an hour where two of my most capable staffers argued each side of whether to vote for it or not. So as a lawyer, I, I found that helpful. I, and I think I made the right decision at the time for, for lots of reasons. But, but that kind of process doesn't come naturally to non-lawyers, it's, and it's not easy to do. So uh, why should people make themselves do it in that kind of way? And, and how can you do it well so that you don't put your thumb on the scale for one side or another, especially if you don't have a, a really good chief of staff and really smart staffers who are, who are crafting the arguments, but you're in there crafting your own arguments with your own biases. Sure. So that's the third step, the BICAD, B, break it down. I identify your values. I know we skipped over that, but your mom calling you and saying, do something, right? I mean, I suggest in the book, you literally write down what matters to you. Write down specifically, you think you know what you value, honesty, efficiency, financial security, write it down before you're making these 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 big decisions. And C, you're mentioning is collect, sees collect lots of knowledge. This is actually number four, argue both sides. It's the old pros and cons list. So so we, we, we've all heard that, big decisions, write your pros and your cons. That is what this suggests to do, we do. It's a little more sophisticated, but the alternative is where Vladimir Putin is, where it's an echo chamber. George uh, W. Bush, this, the, the Iraqi invasion, you're hearing just one side of things, things that you, people already think they wanna hear. If for you, you're not so sure that you're, that you're going to be objective, take a deep breath and ask someone to play devil's advocate. We've always, we've heard that as well. I mean, do you really want to undergo a sort of breaking edge cancer treatment if you're not gonna think about what are the side effects of that? We've all heard about get a second opinion on medical advice. I mean, what, what I'm doing is kind of putting in a methodology what we already know in our common sense is under different terminology, what you do to make a good, good decision. Because, because we also know hindsight's 2020. We, we also know buyer's remorse. I mean, I would rather have hashed out or wargamed what all of the implications before I make that decision for two reasons. One, I can make a better decision potentially, but number two, when things don't go as planned, I can say to myself, well, I really feel good about how I made the decision. 
So, so we're not going to beat ourselves up or we're not going to second guess us as much. Or, I mean, it, I'm also thinking, and that's the T, break it up, identify values, collect information, argue both sides. T, tolerate that you're not going to get everything you want and that not everyone's going to be happy. But part of the idea is if you go through four, steps one through the first few steps, the four, first four steps, when, when things, when you have to give some stuff up, when you have to compromise, when it doesn't work out necessarily that great, you can feel okay. I did the best I could. I, I made the best possible decision with this methodical and careful thought, really specific about what matters to me. And if you've identified your values and you get 60%, but it's consistent with your value, my argument is you'll feel better about it because it aligns with your personal values. And frankly, that's something I learned as a kid. I mean, that's not about being a lawyer, but as you know, from having gone through law school and practice law and been in Congress, values underlie our law across the board. We, in common law England, there were no criminal laws. Yeah, the, the Klansmen fought it out. I mean, they, they killed each other to death. And then the King came in and said, I need some order. This is too much chaos. So then they developed a criminal code. So there's your value system. We want order. Why do we stop at stop signs? Why do we stop at red lights? Um, and they're tickets for speeding because we like order. We don't want to give our kids, a 16 year old, the keys period, but we certainly don't want to give them the keys to the car thinking that they're going to get to the first intersection and it's willy nilly and they could just get mowed down by a, by an 18 wheeler because there are no laws and other parts of the world. There aren't laws like that. You can drive on the sidewalk. It is best person wins. And so I suggest when you're making decisions in your own life, you do the same thing lawyers do. We call it policy in the law. You're very particular about what matters to you. You argue both sides, and then you make a decision that's consistent with your value system. What I really appreciated about the book is that I made the decision 20 years ago not to go to law school. I was in grad school at the time. I actually had a friend. I was I was agonizing about whether to add a law program and I just couldn't get there. And eventually she said, Matt, I have a question for you. Do you want to be a lawyer? And I said, God, no. And she said, then why would you go to law school? You've actually solved that conundrum in this book. Because if you are considering going to law school or you're in law school right now, one of the merits of this book is that it can help you accelerate that process to the epiphany that Paul had when he was a 1L of how do I do this successfully? How can I be more successful as a lawyer? If you're on the other side of the equation, like me and most of our listeners, I assume, and you are not ever going to go to law school, you get all the value of that kind of training by reading the book. And you really do a great job of breaking it down, giving examples, going through both cases and case studies, the legal side and the non-legal life side. So I commend the book to everyone. If you're watching this on video, it's right over my right shoulder here. Kim, thanks so much again for being with us. Oh, it was terrific. Thank you for having me. 